can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Free and uncorrupted communication. I'm very, very happy to be here this evening. I'm actually going to begin by reading you a story, a love story. It will take me about 20 minutes to do so, so please just settle in. As I tell my students, you don't have to take notes at this point. Uh, just settle in, relax, and listen. The story that I'm reading is excerpted from a novel I'm currently writing. It is set during the time of U.S. slavery around the 1830s in the southern state of South Carolina. I couldn't make up my mind whether or not to call this story Roanoke and June or June and Roanoke. So I actually call it both in my head. There are these two main characters, June and Roanoke, plus two others, June's mother, who is named Sicily, and June's paternal aunt, the slave mistress of the plantation, who is known as Aunt Winnie. There's one place near the end where the story jumps from the woods to Aunt Winnie's cabin the next day, but I think you won't have any trouble following that little piece. June and Roanoke, Roanoke and June. As June returned to the plantation from the woods, she spied her mother, Cecilia called Sicily, clearing away rubble in the garden, sporadic gusts of wind making the moss on the scrub oak trees behind her flap like summer laundry. Oh no, June thought, realizing there was no way at this point to avoid an encounter. When she came alongside the row where Sicily was working, the wildness that had boiled in Sicily for the past few months jumped out at her daughter. You getting big, gal. What you doing prorating in those woods? You trying to get another one laid on top of that one you carrying? Or you want some marauding nigger, a crazy white something to poke that baby clean out of you? Ma was all that June could drag up from her body that low suspended cry and a look of prayer that begged please not no more not right now not this time she had given up hoping for understanding but at this moment she desperately needed a little peace june was eight months pregnant and wouldn't tell her mother who the baby's father was after holding on to herself until she made 16, something well nigh impossible for any slave girl, and then fighting off a gang of white boys on her birthday night, she had decided to become a woman, a full-out, grown-up woman. At least the first child she had would be her own, before any that she was made to bear or somehow ended up getting anyway. She liked that idea, her own body, her baby, herself, her secret. 
But it was driving her mother Cicely crazy not to know. So no matter how bad June wanted peace today, it wasn't coming to her. You act like you Miss High John to conquer herself, Cicely continued. Don't need nothing. Don't need nobody. June's ma didn't have a chance to even crease the air this time as Cicely raved on. Well, how am I supposed to help you if you won't even confident me, your own mother? What can I do when folks say it don't look right the way you act? I know you ain't spooked and the child's okay, but Ma Rain still won't start to piece no quilts long as you're not talking to her. June reared, let all of them go fart at the devil. If they don't want to help me and my baby lessen they know all of my business, they can kiss my pregnant black ass. And she strode on off. June's business was a man named Roanoke Blackwell. He was the father of the child she bore the man who had made her a woman. On what she would always remember as the luckiest day of her life, June had made her way to the secluded spot in the woods she called her own. It was a small clearing tucked under some trees a few yards from a clear running stream. Sunlight tended to filter in and a mess of birds filled it with song. When she broke into its secret center, the world outside faded away. Here she found room to turn around inside herself. The place pacified her soul. The first thing she did was shimmy out of her crocosac shift and stand naked in the stillness, letting freedom suffuse her skin. It was all the black man watching from his hideout in the bushes could do not to let out a gasp. He had been six days running a torturous escape trail, but the wood in his pants still leapt up. Everybody who thought that June was not much to look at had never seen her out of her clothes. In them, she may have been the scarecrow gangly girl whom folks unmercifully teased, but nude, her long, dark body was a beautiful sight to behold. Straining, sound choking in his throat, the man yielded to the pleasure of looking at her. His name was Roanoke Blackwell. He was born outside the city whose name he wore and had spent the bulk of his 33 years catching and grooming slaves for its thriving market. Too much of this brutal work had wore him out, not physically, for he was still a healthy mulatto man of medium build with striking gray-green eyes and hair that started to glint reddish by the end of summer. The trading had exhausted his spirit. In one year, he witnessed enough cruelty to last a lifetime, but himself a slave, albeit one who was highly valued. He was compelled by his master to keep participating in the soul-killing business year after year. The only choice Roanoke Blackwell could make was to finally flee. So, here he was, scrunched down in the bushes he had run to when he heard footsteps approaching. Before that, he was about to take a dip in the stream, then lie down and rest. With no one to look out for him, he could never deeply sleep, but he badly needed the bath and the rest, both of which receded further and further from his mind as he continued to watch the girl. Right then and there, he knew 
that he must make love with this woman. And before he could think a straight thought, he rushed out of his hiding place. Wah! June screamed as she stumbled upright and fumbled for the dress underneath her, trying to cover herself. Her alarm returned Roanoke to his senses. Oh, excuse me, ma'am. Please excuse me. Which was silly for him to say, as if he had somehow stumbled open her boudoir door and not been there peeping full face at her all the time. Arrested in their agitated motion, the two of them fell strangely silent, locked eyes appraising each other. June felt no fear. Who are you anyway, she wanted to know, and what are you doing out here spying on me? She pulled her shift over her head. Comfortable now and curious, she sat down. He followed suit and dropped himself next to her. Roanoke obligingly told his story as she listened without interruption. After he finished, she was feeling a whole lot better about him, enough so that when he asked where she came from, June talked longer than was her habit about her life. I come out here from the Clayton Plantation, about four miles on the other side of these woods. I come here as much as I can steal away. When the missus falls sick, she has crazy fits. It gets easy for me to disappear. Aunt Winnie, my dead daddy's sister, helps keep me from not being noticed. I'm supposed to be helping her out a lot of the time. Anyway, I love this here place. Even when it's risky, I sneak out here. Even when it's almost dark, summer nights, and then the big moon help me to find my way. I ain't never been one of them scared-a-cat kind of girls. When she bragged this last, June sounded more like 12 than 16. Nowhere near the womanly 18 Roanoke Blackwell gave her. He was exceedingly happy, though, with what he heard her say. It gave him the opening he needed. Well, I was wondering if I stayed around here until tomorrow, if you could bring me something to eat and maybe some ointment I could put on this barbed wire cut festering on my back. June's eyes widened with interest, but looking up at the sky, she said she'd best hurry home. She promised to return, if she could, the very next day. Roanoke sat a long time thinking about her, absently rubbing his thighs. When he lay down, he dropped off instantly and slept better than he had in weeks. June arrived at the clearing the next day, a bit earlier than Roanoke had expected, bringing fragrant field peas with fried hoe cake and okra. They greeted each other today somewhat shyly. With many thanks, he sat and ate the food she had brought. She contentedly watched him as he did it. He was what some women termed a nice-looking man. Every single feature about him was perfectly formed, and they all fit well together. From his evenly arched brow and full-fleshed lips to his sturdy, square-toed feet, when he set aside the pan he had been balancing on his knees, he looked up at June and, for no obvious reason, began to smile. Her mouth curved upward in reciprocation, and the two of them looked at one another, grinning like fools. I brought the salve you said you wanted. June fumbled in the big patch pocket on her shift. Would you rub it on my back, he asked. His direct question tilted her off balance, but yes, she said in a quick reply. Just let me rinse myself off. 
Roanoke got up and began to step the little distance across to the stream, June following in his foot tracks. I'll be right back. I'll wait on the bank. And June kept walking. They got to the edge. Roanoke turned his back to her and began to strip. He paused with his shirt halfway over his head and then swiveled his whole body around, staring commandingly at her. Why don't you wait over there for me? I'll only take a minute and then be right back. It was June's turn to silently laugh and be contrary. So you want to be the one who gets to do all the looking, huh? You think that's the way things are supposed to be. Look all you want, Roanoke shot back, defiant and somewhat embarrassed. But with her eyes leveled on him, his undressing slowed way down. He pulled his other arm out of his shirt, but couldn't decide whether he wanted to front her or turn his back as he began to take off his trousers. He pushed them down to where the light trail of hair bushed out below his navel, then turned away, slipping them over his buttocks, lifting out one leg and then the other, finally standing up. He wanted to see June before he plunged into the water, but he didn't want to face himself full in her direction. So he arced slightly like a nude model posing for a figure and scanned for her across his shoulder. Yes, most definitely, she was gazing all over him. He was still what the women would consider a nice-looking specimen. He ran into the water more out of nervousness than anything else, for there was no need to take this stream by storm. Though sparkling fresh, it ran almost pleasantly warm in the midst of summer. Come on in, he called to June. She didn't answer, just stood on the flat green bank as he splashed and ducked. Being in the water was restoring Roanoke's confidence and humor, so much so that when he was done, he stepped boldly out of the creek. June swung into rhythm with him and walked to the dappled circle half shaded by young willow trees. They sat on his spread out bedroll while beads of water rolled over him and dried themselves out. The warm sun and the accumulating minutes were making Roanoke increasingly aware of his naked self. Is my back dry enough yet for you to rub me? Yes, June answered without checking and shifted her position so that she sat facing his left side slightly toward the rear. She could tend his back with her right hand and also keep her eye on him. She began by feeling the area around the cut, which was puffy and hot. The wound, only half scabbed now from being in the water, was red inside and running a pinkish pus. It was a nasty tear, painful enough to make Roanoke wince from the pressure of her exploration. Ouch! The sound came out of him. I'm sorry, June said, and lightened her touch to the gentlest whisper. She carefully applied Aunt Winnie's ointment. Working from the center of the gash, she smoothed salve outward in a pattern of petal strokes. Every now and then, Roanoke emitted a soft grunt or a sigh. They had both relaxed into what June was doing. She loved nursing, loved her clearing, loved the sun, loved the feel of his live body. 
Roanoke was melting into all of it, but the activity began to feel, to him, more sensuous, and his languid energy took on a quickened edge. I guess the snake in front of me likes the feel of your hands on my body, was the line he came up with. Tell him to go and lay back down, June replied. He's hard-headed. It don't quite work like that. June didn't ask him how it did work. She already had some reliable ideas about that. She stopped stroking Roanoke's back and closed up her medicine tent. And there they sat, his desire still cresting between them. Slowly, he drew her to him. He hazarded a kiss, then another, and another, until he fell on top of her, then turned over on his side and crushed her into him with his arms. It was that feel of them squeezed tight together that etched impression on June. Roanoke's gradual softening as he breathed, Oh, Miss June, over and over into her ear, her own raggedy breast tearing out of her as the loud beating of her heart subsided, she likewise pulling him to her until there was nowhere closer or further he could go. Even as they said their goodbyes, they stayed glued together. Even now, the next morning, in Aunt Winnie's dust bright cabin she could feel him on her she may as well have been back in the woods with the running of the brook the glad bird song trap breezes blowing air both cool and warm their laughter softly ringing June June gal don't you hear me talking to you where in the world is your mind today hand me that there bunch of time June startled and reached her the tansy what's gone wrong with you Since when can't you tell medicine from seasoning? Aunt Winnie bustled up, put back the tansy, and picked up the time she wanted. Come, let's get on up to the big kitchen and start doing the cooking. Maybe you can pay attention to some pound cake and a few peach pies. June was not one whit more mindful in the kitchen. She almost poured clabbered buttermilk in the pie crust. She dropped a big wooden batter spoon and burned her knuckles on a red-hot pan. Aunt Winnie had never seen anything like this. You's baffle-handed as a souder day. What the devil's got into you? Nothing, Aunt Winnie. June had barely spoken 20 words all morning, but that by itself was nothing unusual. Sometimes she and Aunt Winnie worked together for hours without passing a mumble. Trained to be her helper since she was big enough to walk, June usually moved like a silent extension of the older woman. Are you feeling all right, child? Yes, ma'am. I'm doing fine. I just didn't sleep too good last night. Aunt Winnie took a long, penetrating look at her. Although June acted subdued, she was actually brimming with light. She didn't appear the least bit tired or unhappy, just mopey and distracted. Aunt Winnie had never seen her this way. If she didn't know any better, she would have guessed that a love bug had stung her. But no new men had showed up on the place, and June had steadfastly refused all the old ones so long she couldn't imagine that one of them had all of a sudden become something wondrous. June almost squirmed under Aunt Winnie's probing eye. A drip of pie juice burning in the stove gave her an excuse to move. This one's ready, Aunt Winnie. For the rest of the long afternoon, June jumped around lively. 
When the cooking was done, Aunt Winnie would have set her to shelling peas, but told her instead to slip quietly home and take a nap and make sure she showed up bright early tomorrow morning. The next day crept away slowly. By the time the stir Roanoke cocked his ears for, couldn't be anything but June, and she herself strode through the denseness, Roanoke was so excited to see her that he lost his fretful train of thought. Hey there, hey to you. Their eyes and their hearts were dancing. Come here and eat you some vittles. The only thing I'm hungry for is the sight of you. But he submitted to her pleas spreading out of the food she had gotten for him. Aunt Winnie's famous mixed greens into which she had thrown some fat flour dumplings and four fingers of smoked beef ribs. He tried to cajole her into sharing it with him. Roanoke, I'm not hungry. You know I ate me a bellyful before I come running out here. That all's for you. But he kept picking at her and she enjoyed little nibbles from his loaded plate. She had tried to bring him a slice of pie, but no amount of wheatling could induce Aunt Winnie to cut one. Sometimes she did, sometimes she wouldn't. So June had to settle for a few rosy ripe peaches hidden in her scarf. She would surprise him with them later for dessert. When he had eaten as much as he could and put by the rest, they lay down next to each other and looked up through the trees. Neither one wanted to disturb their contented silence with talk. They breathed in unison, crooked their elbows together and laced fingers, and before they knew it, had dozed off to sleep. They awoke facing close to each other. The sun was still warm in the late July sky. As they moved together this time, there was no pretense, cajoling, or reluctance, no uncertain holding back. They came full on to each other. Returning back into the world in separated bodies took some time. The sun was exiting through one door and the moon coming in at the other when they finally straightened themselves out. Oh, June recollected, I brought you something. <laughs> yeah, you sure enough did. Run out, June hit at him and smiled. I brought you some peaches for dessert. Don't need no dessert, but I'm happy to eat the peaches. Both he and June ate them. They were ripe, firm, juicy, and sweet, and perfectly hit the spot. In unison, they were thinking it, but it was Roanoke who asked, What us gonna do? June said nothing, so he continued, I want you to come away with me, but I don't want to ask, because I don't know what lies on the road ahead. He was speaking symbolically. There was more wildness and deer paths than road in the often, more circling and dodging than plowing straight ahead. Why don't you stay round here, June suggested, and be a slave and get caught back by my owner? That's the life that compelled me to run away. June knew that and also knew his chances to escape were slim, but slimmer still if she went with him. She also didn't know if she was ready to leave her family and home place. She was sure of how she felt about him, but didn't know what all that meant. One thing it meant, however, she did know. Roanoke, I want you to breed me. It was his turn to keep silent. Roanoke, 
Did you hear me? June darling, why you be wanting that? It's time for me to be a woman. You help make me a woman. I want to be a woman all the way. She stopped for a minute. I want us to make a baby. His wood lap like the very first time he had seen her, and his brain got hot. The thought of it rippled like a wave inside him. But another slave, a baby slave, he didn't like that part of the thought, or the part about him not being with her. They hassled the subject backward and forward, forward and back, covering the same limited ground and getting no closer to satisfaction than when they started. Okay, Roanoke finally gave it up. Let's us think some more about it and then talk again. He looked at her in the moonlight, breathing in her pointed face. With desire cascading, he drew her to him. It was late, time for June to get home, and she was now feeling the tenderness of her tissues. But he caressed her body into liquid softness. What they did together was like a downy second layer of their promise to love. And, June thought, maybe I already have the baby. To make sure she loved him with passion and intention for the next two times they met, he did more of the same. They had decided that he would continue onward to freedom and then return for her very soon with help, the knowledge of routes and way stations, a place prepared. A notice out for him was brooded about on Sunday. June told him about it and watched his reddish-brown face darken with danger. Before Aunt Winnie and Cicely figured out that she was not sleeping with either one of them during the night, June darted back on Monday, Roanoke's last day, loaded down as usual with as much provision as she could steal and carry. He knew it was silly and foolish, but he couldn't help asking whether she had changed her mind. We've been all over that. I'll be waiting right here for you. Come on back to me. And June broke down crying, which starched him up. This time of their love-making was furious and plaintive and desperate. Since they couldn't be together, they would see a prince on one another to rematch when next they met. But the sadness and the fury did not lessen. There was no way to make this parting mellow. All June could do was turn away, leaving him longing behind her. All Roanoke Blackwell did was tie up his things, lie down for one last time in the unparalleled air of the clearing, and wait for dust dark to leave. Last night, along with the coyotes, he had heard the hunt dogs barking. I cannot imagine that I would have written this June and Roanoke story had I not come through the black feminism of the 1970s and 80s. From that scholarship, which was imaginative and inspired, there arose the impetus to see behind the official versions of black slave life to the no doubt existent human complexity lying underneath and to look deeply with heart, unafraid of the personal dimensions of the work, our own personal or that of our subjects. 
In But Some of Us Are Brave, Erlene Stetson asks mind-bending questions gathered from her and her students' attempts, dogged attempts, to create a historical and literary language in which to encapsulate slavery as a female experience. There's Shirley Ann Williams' original and surprising novel, Dessa Rose, where Cain loves Dessa and a white woman takes up with a runaway black male slave. Margaret Rocker wrote her prescient novel, Jubilee, in 1966. So much revisionary attention to the slave past from the perspective of black women. All of this constitutes a powerful expose of the racism, sexism, inhumanism of real conditions and the courage to write the truth. Mary Helen Washington's thought-challenging question, why is the heroic slave always a male? And what constitutes heroism anyway? Angela Davis's pioneering feminist essay, Reflections on the Black Woman's Role in the Community of Slaves, written while she was in prison. We can invoke Toni Morrison's Beloved, the worldwide recognition of which, via her Nobel Prize, said unequivocally that this chapter in United States history, with its global implications, is up for healing and possible release. Currently, the Supreme Court has ruled against cross burnings. The reparations movement is very much alive. South Carolina finally redesigned its neo-Confederate flag. There is also in this story the fitting attention to the sexuality of the black slave characters. Attention to them as something other than coerced superstuds or female victims of rape and concubinage. Control of sexuality, active choice, agency with respect to, fulfillment of, and joy in, these are marks and a most important indication of free human status. Both in theory and in literary work, black feminist writers set forth this sexual dimension of being human. Audre Lorde, perhaps, is one of our best contemporary examples. In the prologue to her biomythography, Zami, Lord courageously, or we might say outrageously, confesses how she has, in her words, and I'm quoting, always wanted to be both man and woman, to incorporate the strongest and richest parts of my mother and father within into me, to share valleys and mountains upon my body the way the earth does in hills and peaks, end quote. And she writes about the erotic as power. Sexuality is an area of concern for us all. As with slavery, our society continuously struggles to get it right. Officially, the government tries to contain sex and sexuality, push it back into religion and repression, despite the fact that what is actually needed is more light, more honesty, more healthy visibility and discussion. The recent flap about John F. Kennedy's dalliance with his intern reminded me that in Soul Talk, 
I speculate out loud about the good changes that may have occurred had President Bill Clinton handled his 1998 sexual scandal differently. Not shame-ridden confessional disclosure, but total honesty and explanation. Acknowledgement of dysfunctional emotional patterns acquired in childhood and therapeutic work to heal them. No tit-for-tat blaming, but thoughtful discussion of how his situation represented a shared and common problem crying to be addressed by revolutionarily different notions about the meaning of marriage and sexual union. Not penitential religious solace, but a bold sense of working cooperation with transformative energies. Needless to say, as a society, we're not there yet. Finally, the permission to write a piece of creative fiction was, in a very real sense, fostered by black women coming into our own as confident women who could believe in our worth as persons and potential artists. All that talk about artists without art forms, all that recognition of how our mother's gardens did not fully flourish, all that attention to the power of the liberating word emboldened us to speak up and write up with no avenues of expression deemed off limits. The black feminist movement served as an early human potential laboratory and ongoing self-actualization workshop. I participated through the Combahee River Collective Retreat Group, through curriculum and professional reform in the Modern Language Association where we asked, why can't we teach Nina Simone in our courses? Through revisionary work on the women writers of the Harlem Renaissance who, unfortunately, were dire lessons about what could happen if you died with your real gifts locked in and unexpressed. Black feminism, of course, was not the only radical movement around. It was part of a huge phenomena that it was both fed by and that it contributed to. Black feminism has helped, especially those of us in academia, to review the past and invent the future. Many root radical black feminist ideas, stances, attitudes have now become near axiomatic, so much so that we often forget where they came from or just how revolutionary they were when first presented or how much struggle it took to render them clear and accepted. For example, the idea of multiple and interlocking identities and oppressions. Uh, people used to ask Shirley Chisholm when she ran for president at nauseam, they asked her, what has caused you the most oppression, being black or being a woman? That was always a trick question. The idea that surviving is not passive victimization, but tremendous will and agency. In my Black Studies 127 class, we just finished talking about this idea with regard to Celie in The Color Purple. 
Another idea, that women without hegemonic artistic outlets express their creativity in whatever forms they can, from the blues to braiding hair. In her latest book, Black Feminist Cultural Criticism, Professor Bobo notes that quilts tangibly link, and here's a quote, black women's cultural traditions with a heritage of resistance, and that cooking has held families together and forged lives of possibilities and hopes, especially the enduring rituals associated with the preparation and consumption of heritage foods, such as pig's feet and hog jaws. In the stunningly creative work of black feminist thinkers and writers, we see a vision for human revolution that embraces personal wholeness and social justice. Barbara Smith suggests exactly what we are up to when she defines feminism as the theory and practice that will free all people. Anything less than that, she declares, is only female chauvinism. Furthermore, these thinkers and writers try to show how to make this vision manifest in our lives and operative in our world. What do they present? The best way for me to address this question is to tell you about the project that has been my latest extended work the personal, scholarly, and creative effort that went into making Soul Talk. For some time, I had been aware that a black feminist vision erupted in African-American women's lives and writings around 1980. In large numbers, black women were feeling our power and feeling good about ourselves. In addition, a spectacular outpouring of literature by authors such as Toni Morrison, Gail Jones, Nikki Giovanni, and others were generating excitement among the American reading public. Their works sparkled with racial revelations and spiritual magic. These developments interfaced with other movements and energies that were attempting to evolutionize the world. As a way to understand and articulate this phenomena, it eventually dawned upon me to search within myself for insights and to speak candidly with other active and progressive black women. Because of the way Alice Walker's remarkable novel, The Color Purple, had put heretofore taboo topics in the center of public discussion, I decided to talk with her. Because of Tony Cade Bambara's fierce furthering of all things black, both earthy and metaphysical, for example, in her novel about politics and healing entitled The Salt Eaters, I knew she had to be a part of the project. Lucille Clifton was included because of her succinct and beautiful poetry, and for her humorous but seriously affirming way of speaking about how her dead mother had contacted her 
Lucille through a Ouija board many years after her death. Six other women eventually participated. Writers Sonia Sanchez and Dolores Kendrick, poet and artist Michelle Gibbs, corporate human relations specialist Geraldine McIntosh, writer and professor Masani Alexis DeVoe, and shamanic psychotherapist Namanya Soipan. What became clear to me after dialoguing intensely and extensively with these women, all of whom I knew well and loved, was that their exemplary lives and work encompassed three dimensions politics, spirituality, and creativity. Moreover, I realized that any recipe for truly effective social transformation and human revolution needed to include these three ingredients, not practiced separately, but intricately interwoven. This means, first of all, understanding how our own particular race, gender, economic status, and so on, fits into hierarchical systems of power and privilege and fighting the injustices which result therefrom. Then, secondly, uniting that with whatever means we employ to tap into the realm of spirit that enables us to function at our highest capacity, whether that access be through meditation, prayer, running, gardening, lifting weights, cooking, dancing, writing, making music, making love. And then, thirdly, turning the good, the beautiful, and the truth that we apprehend from the creative place of spirit into something concrete that can be shared. Whether it is a welcome solution to a pressing societal problem, a painting that uplifts everyone who views it, or a gorgeous pot of greens. One of the women in Soul Talk, Michelle Gibbs, is a red diaper baby born to a black father and a white Jewish mother. She had spent her life following in the footsteps of her parents as a community organizer and seasoned activist. Like Tony K. Bambara's character Velma, she knew how to work the political, economic, social, cultural, aesthetic, military, psychosocial, psychosexual mix. Finally, though, after the gains of the civil rights era began to be eroded and co-opted, after more pernicious forms of self-destructiveness began surfacing in her Detroit community, she was forced to recognize the absolute necessity for new questions and new perspectives. In her words, and I'm quoting her, people have to get real about what they need. I mean, is it baby formula? Is it Wonder Bread? What kind of milk? Certainly not from chemically fed cows. First, you have to get rid of all the junk that you are bombarded with in the society every day before more of it does you any good. More of it is not going to do any good.
So it requires a kind of fundamental altering of consciousness before we even know what won't help us. End of her quote. Confronted with a room of 50 homeless people, 45 of whom are women and children, Michelle says that something entirely new has to transpire. The correct response is not about milk and bread, but the question, what kind of a home can we create together? What kind of an alternative model for the sustenance of life can we imagine? In answer to the anguished query of what do we do now? What do we do? How can we get a handle on not only our community but ourselves? Michelle volunteered her response. She says, I could only answer from my own experience. I had to face the question of what am I here for? What is my work in this world? Do I have a gift that is essentially me? Not what does anybody else expect of me? Not what does this other community need? No, the wrong questions. But instead, what is that essential seed inside me that speaks to creativity and birth and continuance? And once you identify that, you will see what to do. And my own belief is that everybody has that. But their belief in human nature is not always that strong, which is part of the problem. End of her quote. Political consciousness, spiritual underpinnings, belief in creativity. Here, Michelle fronts all three. Just as a progressive African-American feminist vision sees these connections, it likewise intuits the interconnections that exist among everything that is. What continually amazed me was how black women, relentlessly bombarded with every kind of hate and injustice imaginable, could still grandly affirm the unifying rightness and power of transcendent love. For instance, Geraldine McIntosh talked once about walking down the hall of her company headquarters feeling nasty as all get out, but still, still having the warmth of her energy radiate to everyone she passes. And these are Geraldine's words. Even when people are all bound with stuff, they can still look at me and see caring. Even when I'm pissed, even when I don't like white people, the white people that I don't like will say, she's so sensitive. They say I'm caring, sensitive, all that stuff about how I know how to treat people. What that is, is sameness with all people. They may not talk about what they're registering in terms of caring. They will talk about it in terms of wherever it is they're open. They know they don't have to put up a barrier because I ain't got one up. See, I think people can sense that. That's how spirit plays itself out in my everyday life. When I said to Geraldine, that would certainly then be about every encounter she has with everyone, she responded, 
It happens with cats and dogs too. <laughs> Similarly, Alice Walker identifies her spiritual gift as love, which also seduces, and these are her words, chickens and pigs and turkeys, end quote. And expressed in her art accounts for the fact that the universal qualities she captured in Seely, what she calls that Seeliness, that spirit energy, is recognized by, and here I'm quoting Alice, all the Seelies of the world. What their present stage of personal oppression or liberation is doesn't matter. Or whether they live in India or Pakistan, Iceland or Germany. Alice says they write to her and declare, that's me. What I keep trying to articulate, and I'm closing now, is that the consciousness we see operative in the work of these women and in others like them provides a blueprint we can use to revolutionize the way we live as human beings on this planet. I think very few people would argue with me when I say that these are critical, if not crisis, times. We have war instead of peace. Low-level entertainment and disinformation masquerading as news. Corporate conglomeration and greed instead of grammar school textbooks, health insurance, living wage jobs, or affordable housing. Big nations bully and buy out weaker ones. The environment is suffering. Civil liberties here at home are not secure. More and more children are killed literally and spiritually by poverty, bullets, bombs, and violent and racist video games. As we go about our business, blessed to be here in beautiful Santa Barbara, it is easy to forget that the overwhelming majority of people in this world, indeed in this country, are not nearly so fortunate. Those of us, like myself, who experience the hope and optimism of the radical social movements of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, out of which black feminism grew, and all of us here who, in various ways, benefited from those gains, are aware of just how much times have changed. Mega millions of people out in the streets of the world could not stop the Iraqi war. This period we are experiencing, I believe, is a kind of hiatus, a seeming nadir where external movement is stymied. During this period, we are being called upon, again, I believe, to continue to impact the outside world as best we can, of course, but more importantly, to look within and get ourselves together. To ask Michelle's question, what is that essential seed inside me that speaks to creativity and birth and continuance? To seek out our gifts and possible contributions. To get clear about who and what we are. To figure out how to establish relationships with our higher selves, our spirits, and with each other. All of this so that when this retrograde period ends and fresh opportunities cycle forth, we will be ready 
and able finally to turn the planet around to complete the unfinished business of the civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, peace and freedom movements and transport ourselves solidly from old age to new. Lucille Clifton has written a poem that captures this new perspective. I'd like to share it with you. You are not your brother's keeper. You are your brother. The one hiding in the bush is you. The one lying on the grate is you. The mad one in the cage or at the podium is you. The king is you. The kike is you. The honky is you. The nigger is you. The bitch is you. The beauty is you. The friend is you. The enemy. Oh, others have come to say this. It is not metaphor. You are not your sister's keeper. You are your sister. Yes. Hold this poem as I leave you with the voices of three other black women, casualties, surviving via their challenging words. Tony Cade Bambara, are you sure, sweetheart? that you want to be well? Health ain't no trifling matter. Whole lot of weight gets laid on you when you're well. Audrey Lord, what are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence. Perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears. Because I am woman, because I am black, because I am lesbian, because I am myself, a black woman, warrior poet doing my work, come to ask you, are you doing yours? And finally, most simply and profoundly, June Jordan's poignant question, where is the love? Thank you all very much. <laughs>